Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? Praise the Lord. He's risen. It's good to see you. Amen. Open your Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 is where we left off last week. And in God's kind providence here on this Resurrection Sunday, we find ourselves in maybe the most famous verse in the Bible, maybe the most famous sentence ever written. If you were like me and you grew up addicted to sporting events in the 70s as a little kid, there used to be this crazy guy with a rainbow hairdo, I don't know if it was a wig or not, and he would have a sign at virtually every major event. I don't know how he got tickets, I don't know what he did, but he always had a sign with John 3.16. So whether you have been a Christian for a long time, or you're not yet a believer and you're here by invitation, or you're vaguely familiar with the message of the Bible, I think on some level you are familiar with the passage this morning. Now we're going to read verse 16 all the way through 21. We're going to spend most of our time thinking about verse 16 of John chapter 3. Before I read it and pray, I want to alert us to, I think, a two-way street of temptation that we have, particularly in this moment, in this passage, on this day. The first temptation is on me. On Easter Sunday, pastors feel this kind of tug to, in a sense, sort of spruce up the Sunday, maybe to be more eloquent or to think that, you know, if they're just a little bit more clever, a little bit more polished, that somehow then finally God can use them. And I, I confess that lurks somewhere in my heart all the time, and that's a wrong way to think. On the other side of the street, a temptation that you may face is that this text is so familiar that we may think that we, yeah, I got that. Isn't that neat, Brad, that we just happened to be when we started John back in mid-January, and here we are on Easter Sunday in John 3.16. I, I got this. Well, let's, let's not fall into that temptation. Let's not think that just because we're familiar with this verse that we fully feel the glory of this verse in this moment. And let's not be distracted by all of the Easter peripheries that can obscure our worship. Well, let me read verses 16 through 21, and then we're going to zero in on verse 16. This is what the Scriptures say. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that, th that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Well, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us this morning. Father, thank you for this Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday, as believers in Jesus, we celebrate the, the victory over death, sin, and the grave. Every Sunday is a new week, a new reminder of your resurrection. But in particular, Lord, on this spring Sunday, we come as believers in Jesus to remember the glory of our risen King. Lord, I pray for other churches in our city that believe this gospel, that are preaching this gospel, that you might move in their services and do wonderful things. May the wind of the Spirit blow and, and do marvelous things. Lord, we pray for believing churches all around the world, for our brothers and sisters in, in India and in Uganda and Haiti and other places, the United Arab Emirates, where we have friends ministering the gospel. And Lord, today, here in this place, Lord, would you open our eyes for people that came in not knowing Jesus. Lord, would you call them to believe? Would you open their eyes? Would they trust in Christ today? And Lord, for believers, would would this not just be a kind of traditional day where we're just trying to get through it and check a box, but May our time in your word this morning cause us to worship you all for your glory and our joy in the salvation of the lost. Lord, would you do these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's look again at verse 16, and we'll spend the majority of our time there. And after we unpack verse 16, we'll, we'll read through verses 17 through 21 again. So, verse 16 I just want to take it phrase by phrase, opens with this glorious thought, for God so loved the world. Now, I think instinctively, when most of us think of that verse, and understandably so, we tend to, by nature, measure this as if God's love is so big that it could love so many people and such a vast creation, and certainly that's true. But the force of what John is saying here in verse 16 is not that God's love would be judged so amazing by how big it is in the sense that it could wrap its arms around the whole world. Not by the bigness of the world, but by the badness of the world. That God would love a fallen world at all is amazing. In fact, when we journey through John in this upcoming year, we will see that the overwhelming majority of the way that John, the apostle, uses the phrase, the world, is to speak of this fallen world, this, this culture that has rejected God. In fact, that's the way Jesus speaks of it. In John chapter 7, verse 7, he says, the world cannot hate you, but it meaning this fallen system. It hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. 
And now, before we move on to the next phrase, we, we have a, a kind of fork in the road that we need to make sure we make the right turn. When we think about the world and God's love for this fallen world, then our next instinct is to think about, yes, all of these things that are out there. In fact, I don't think I need to do any convincing with this crowd here this morning that the world is a broken place. It's, it's a mess. It's a, it's, a, it's a dumpster fire, really, in a lot of ways. We all are well acquainted with that. But we will miss the truth of the most important sentence in the world if the world for us and God's love for the world remains out there, friends. No, God's love for the world is a love for the world that I and you are a part of. We are part of this dumpster fire. We are part of this mess. We are the sinful world that God has so loved in this glorious sentence. And let me just with tenderness, before we move on to the rest of this verse, let me just mention something that I think is a real spirit of our age, that is a real deception of our age that I, I, I want you to be aware of, is that we live in a time where the, maybe the highest commodity culturally is the product, the commodity of victimization. Where we are always looking, we're always wanting to classify people in groups and how have they been wronged, whether it's, it's economic wrong or, or ethnic wrong or, or gender wrong. All, all of these things on some level have and are true. But friends, that sort of false narrative that the world wants to say is the truest thing about you, that you are a victim, will cause you to miss the whole point of the gospel. Friends, yes, we've been wronged. Yes, we live in a, a wicked world. Yes, horrible things have happened to people in this room. But friends, know this, and I say this in pastoral love, all of us, every single one of us, are not primarily, first and foremost, victims. We are perpetrators before a holy God. And we won't understand the love of God if we see ourselves first as victims of the world rather than part of the world that God has so gloriously and amazingly decided to love. We are victims in this verse. Or we are not victims in this verse. We are perpetrators in this verse. And what has this love done? This love for the world, this love for sinners like us, it says that he gave his only son. So God's love is not abstract. It's, it's not just merely emotional. It's not just the feels. It's an objective love where God has done something. He has given his son, God the son. What does that verse mean? What does it mean that God gave the son? Well, it means that in the fullness of time, as Galatians tells us, that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the co-creator of the universe, Colossians 1 says that through him and by him and for him, all things were made. Hebrews chapter 1 says that he's upholding all things by the word of his power. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, no beginning, no end, alpha, omega, becomes 
a man and God the Father sins, dispatches his son, which is not a reaction to the fallenness of the world, but is his plan in eternity past. And God the Son, God the Father gives God the Son and he becomes a man. Why does he become a man? Well, let me read to you from Hebrews chapter Two. We've read it before recently, and I, I mentioned a while ago, a couple Sundays ago, that I think Ephesians, Ephesians 2 is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. I'm going to also say that about Hebrews chapter 2. So this is Hebrews chapter 2. Let me read to you a few verses that just shed so much light for us on who this Son is that God in His love has given for the world. This is what it says in Hebrews chapter 2 in verse 10. For it was fitting that he from whom and by whom all things exist. So obviously we're talking about God, right? In bringing many sons to glory. I think that's another way of saying saving many people. It was fitting for, for whom and from whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. <laughs> What's going on in verse 10? Let me just summarize it for you. I think it means that God has decided that it is appropriate and fitting in the way, in, in, in bringing many people to salvation, to make the founder of their salvation, meaning the Son, perfect through suffering. Does that mean that Jesus needed to be perfected or wasn't perfect before he suffered on the cross? No. I think it means clearly that Jesus actually had to accomplish salvation through his suffering. So the work of Christ was finished on the cross. And God has determined that this is fitting. This is the way he's going to do it. The holy God, the Father, sends the perfect son to actually accomplish suffering on the cross. And why is he suffering? He's suffering to take the penalty for our sin. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Think about that. That's a stunning verse. That God in the flesh, God the Son, has become just like us, and he is not ashamed to call us brothers. He comes next to us, and he says there's no gap. I'm with you. This is Jesus claiming solidarity with us fallen people. Now look, it's Easter Sunday. Uh, we've all got some crazy relatives. You're probably going to have lunch today with an uncle who drives you crazy. And you'll be tempted to get on the other side of the room because, man, this guy, this guy. Jesus draws close to us. This is Jesus saying, I'm not ashamed to call them brothers. And God gave him, who is he giving? Not just a son, but the only son, God himself in the flesh. Skip down to verse 14. Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he, meaning Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Paul quoted that earlier, and we, we sang our Paul, not the Apostle Paul, our Paul. 
And we, we sang about that, that, that Jesus has become like us so that he would become a sacrifice for us and deliver all those, verse 15, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. What does that mean? It means that he helps those who have faith. Therefore, verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. In other words, God determined that it was fitting that a sacrifice needed to satisfy the rebellion of mankind would need to be a sacrifice of man himself, and it's Christ, the perfect man. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, and Hebrews 4 adds for us, we won't take the time to read it, although he was like us in every respect, yet without sin. So that he might become, back to verse 17 of Hebrews 2, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Look at that verse 17 again. He makes propitiation. What does that mean? That's one of the most important words in the English language. It means that Jesus becomes our wrath-bearing, wrath-satisfying, wrath-absorbing sacrifice, and he turns the wrath of God. He, as Spurgeon says, in the 1800s in London, he says he drinks damnation dry. So he satisfies, he extinguishes, he dries up, he empties the vessel of God's wrath, and he turns it into grace and righteousness. He takes away the sin of his people, and he gives them his righteousness. That's what propitiation means. It's the most glory. Anytime you see propitiation, circle it, underline it, love it, stare at it. Jesus has satisfied, removed, extinguished the wrath of God, and turned it into favor for all those that trust in him. And that's what God gave. He, he gave that son, Jesus, the God-man. That's who he gave. Friends, don't be duped by Hollywood stars or athletes in a, in a post-game or post-award ceremony or some silly little Instagram post when they vaguely refer to some general notion of deity and everybody's like, oh, they're a believer. No, they, they, they probably just, they, they believe in some ambiguous version of deity. They believe in a, a kind of cosmic false god. They may not believe in the God-man, in Christ. And so we're not just talking about the man upstairs, and we're not just talking about God generally. We're talking about the biblical God who gave the Son. He so specifically loved the world that he specifically gave his only Son who is truly God and truly man in a mystery that we can't understand. And he lays down his life, God in the flesh, identifying with us, defeating, extinguishing God's wrath. So God the Son is bearing the wrath of God the Father for 
this fallen world for those that believe. And then we continue. He says that whoever, let me just read the sentence again. We can't read it enough. For God so loved the world, this fallen world that's not out there, but it's also in here, that he gave. He's not reacting. This is his plan in eternity past. God the Son, who's the only one that could actually satisfy God's whole, because God's love is a holy love. It's not a, it's not a love that's graded on a curve. It's not a love that winks at sin. It's a love that must, in order for it to truly be loving, must satisfy and uphold the holiness of God. So he gave his holy son to die for us. And then he says that whoever believes. In him. So he, he gives us more to this sort of unfolding glorious good news. It's, it's not just generally for the world. It's not just like God. It is for whoever believes in him. Now let's look at this closely. Let's, let's, let's unpack it. First, whoever believes. Now I, want, I, want you to, I want to dive headlong into this beautiful paradox, at least from our perspective, and this beautiful tension that we see right here in, in John's gospel. And, and it's, a, it's a kind of seeming tension, and I say seeming because I don't think there is no tension in God, there is no contradiction in God, there is no paradox in God. He is infinite, He is all-wise, we are not. And so it is a bit of attention from our perspective, and the Bible is not afraid to put this, this tension right within the same chapter. Let me read to you John chapter 3, just a few verses above in verse 3. Jesus says this conversation that we've been looking at the last couple weeks with Jesus and Nicodemus, and he's truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's impossible. How can a man be born again? Jesus says in verse 8, he says, The wind blows where it wishes if you, and where you hear it sound, but he, it, it goes where it goes. He says it comes from, uh, let me read it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. God is sovereign. We can't manipulate. Life comes from Him. He must act on us. He causes the new birth. But yet, in verse 15 that we looked at last week, when Jesus is speaking of him being lifted up on the cross and he's comparing it to the scene of Israel in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 21 where God sends these snakes to bite a bunch of people and kill them and then tells Moses to lift up a bronze statue of a snake on a serpent and he says, whoever looks at the serpent will live. And so we see God is sovereign. You must look. The wind blows where it wills. Whoever believes will live. So, so here's the question that we must grapple with here in verse 16. When John tells us that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Here's the question. Is God utterly, exhaustively sovereign in salvation are we completely dependent on him for life, spiritual life? Or is man responsible? And the answer is yes. 
Yes. Yes. And that's what verse 16 is telling us. That whoever believes. But again, not just a general belief, but believes in him, in Jesus, the God-man who became a real man, who lived a perfect life, who laid down that life on the cross, and then, don't miss this, he didn't just die, but we are here this morning because there is an empty tomb in Jerusalem. He didn't just die for our sins, he rose again in victory over them, death and the grave. First Peter 1, verses 20 through 21 says, he was for, this is speaking of Jesus, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now, what does that mean? It's not like God just happened to know who Jesus was before creation. That's not what foreknown means here. It's speaking of he was foreloved. He was the triune God is in this intimate circle of redemption. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. In other words, he actually broke into his fallen creation Verse 21, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So what are we believing in? We're not just believing in a Jesus who came and taught good principles. We're believing in God who became man and then that God-man who laid down his life to bear the wrath of God the Father, extinguish it, remove it, and then rise again in victory over sin, death, and the grave. And then some 40 days later to ascend into heaven and to promise us that he's coming back. That's what it means to believe in him, that God became man, lived a perfect life, laid down his life, satisfied the punishment for our sin, rose again in victory over sin, death, and the grave, ascended into heaven where he currently reigns, and has promised to come back for us. Now, a word before we move on to that last little phrase, a word since obviously this is Resurrection Sunday. And that is obviously something that should occupy our minds and our thoughts and should cause us to worship and is a wonderful source of truth and meditation for the Christian that I do not want to diminish in any way. But let me say this, that as wonderful as thinking about the resurrection is, as wonderful as thinking about the resurrection as a historical fact and reality, which I am pinning all of my life on, and as wonderful of a truth as that is to persuade your friends with, and I commend that, we should always be prepared, as Peter says, to make a defense of the faith. I think it's wonderful to think deeply about the reliability of the resurrection and to try and persuade our unbelieving friends with this. Yes and amen a thousand times. Yes and amen. But friends, let's remember Let's remember that we cannot ultimately, finally, empirically prove the resurrection as if it's a mathematical equation that if we just get it right, then there's absolutely no doubt. That's not the way God has engineered the world. He calls us to believe in him, to have faith in what we cannot see. 
I mean, Jesus in John chapter 6 that we will get to eventually someday, Jesus walks on water, feeds the multitudes, preaches a hard sermon, and a bunch of people go, go nah, not for me. We, we will, we, here's my point, friends, is that he doesn't call us to be convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt or to make a purely rational, logical decision, although I think Christianity is utterly logical. But that's not what he's calling us to do. He's calling us to believe, to hope, to trust in him because he is more glorified by faith rather than logic. Friends, let's admit we worship a God who became man, who allowed his creation to crucify him, and who rose again. The world calls this foolishness. And let's not try and pretty up foolishness. Let's let the foolishness of God be wiser than the wisdom of man. We must believe in him. And what is verse 16? How does it conclude? That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What does it mean to have eternal life? Now, I think this text, and I think the balance of the Bible is utterly clear that all of us will live spiritually forever. When, when verse 16 says here that those who do not believe in Jesus will perish, I don't think it means that they will cease to exist as if they somehow get annihilated. Because I think the rest of the Bible is full of references. In fact, Jesus himself, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, speaks about his return, and he uses this parable of sheep and goats. The sheep meaning those that believe in his name and have trusted in him, and the goats that have rejected him. And he tells the goats that they will be separated from him and they will suffer eternal punishment. And so I think all of us will live forever. And this text is separating all of humanity really into two categories. Those who believe in him will have eternal life with him. And those who do not believe in him will have eternal life separated from him. Where Jesus says in Mark chapter 9, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now you may say, Brad, that's not a, that's not a great way to greet Easter guests. It's not, but that's, that's, that's the gospel, friends. The good news is not good if it's just an add-on. That's, that's just temporary improvement. But the good news is so gloriously good because God has broken into this world that he's created, that he's allowed to fall. Why would he do it that way? Friends, I, I'm, I'm just one of the pots. We, we don't have, 
full understanding of all that why God has done, but he has deemed for the display of his glory to create a creation that he would allow to fall, that then he would break into and offer his son, God himself in the flesh, so that all that would trust in him would have eternal life and not perish and be separated from him for eternity. That's what this verse is saying. It's the ultimate ground zero message of the Bible. Believe in Jesus and that is your only hope. And you will have, here it is, listen to this, eternal life. Not you will have 40 or 50 years of good leadership principles by which you can navigate through culture better. This is not a promise for American dream or American comfort. It is a promise of being united with God and with him forever, no matter what these 70 or 80 years may bring your way. It's a hope beyond today for forever. That's what Paul concludes in Romans chapter 8. Let me read Romans 8 verse 18. He says, and he's, he has in his mind this hope of eternal life and being resurrected with Jesus forever. And this is how Paul concludes we should think about our present and the future because if we trust in Jesus, we have not just a better life here and now, but eternal life forever. This is what Paul concludes, verse 18 of Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us then. Friends, this is ground zero of of, of kind of Christian biblical understanding that the good news of the gospel never ultimately is for its finality or its culmination. Here, it always lifts our head to then. And that's the promise of this, this verse, that we are fallen and God has broken into this world and he's offered himself his very son on the cross that whoever believes, look and live, look at the cross, look away from yourself and look and trust in Jesus and live forever with him. And what is this forever? Is it somehow some sort of strange, you know, like we're, we get these white robes and wings and, and like we get issued a harp no. And all of a sudden, we all sort of look like one of the Bee Gees. No. Thank God, no. It's a, it's a resurrected, glorified us with this resurrected, glorified Savior. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 3 about this eternal life. He says in Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's speaking about the second return of Jesus. And what will Jesus do when he returns? Now, verse 21 is one of the few verses in the New Testament that gives us this glimpse into the beauty of the beginning of eternity. And here it is, verse 21, when Jesus comes back, so here's, here's the Christian life. We're dead in our sins. We look, we live, we trust in him, we believe in him. 
We are made alive. We're, we're living for him now. The world's still broken. We've still got all this junk on us. We're, we now have this initial process of salvation, justification, you know, new birth, and now we're left here to wade our way through. He uses our lives so that through us, he might bring more people to faith in him. We're believing in him, and we are awaiting. The Christian life is a waiting posture. We are awaiting this Savior. And what does he do when he comes? Verse 21, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So we, if we're alive when Jesus comes back and we're waiting for him, in some beautiful mystery, we're going to be made to be like Jesus. We're glorified, we're, we're complete, no more sin, no more frailty, no more temptation, no more lust, no more depression, no more pain, no more tears. We're, we're like him forever. And if we die before Jesus comes back, the Bible gives us a little glimpse of what's going to happen then. Let me, let me go to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. This is Paul again speaking about the return of Jesus for those that have died, whose bodies are in the ground, but whose spirits are with Jesus in heaven. Verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15, so I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. In other words, these fallen, sinful bodies that we have can't ultimately inherit all the promises of God, the imperishable promises of heaven. Verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, meaning we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and this is speaking of the return of Christ, the coming of Christ, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. So Christians who are believing in Jesus, who are alive at the second coming, and those that are dead, whose bodies are in the ground, but whose spirits are with Jesus, will come back with him. And I don't know what else to tell you, how it happens. I'm only going to say what the Bible says. We will be transformed. We will be reunited. We will be resurrected. And our spirits that are with Jesus in heaven will somehow be transformed, reunited with our bodies, which will be glorified and resurrected. And we will be with him forever. And that's what is promised to those that trust in Him. And that truth, dear ones, is meant to lift us above the pathetic versions of Christianity that we buy into. And to lift our eyes to see all of the good news of the gospel. So let's read verses 17 and 21 again and conclude. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God didn't need to condemn the world. The world has already condemned itself, is what verse 17 is saying. In verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why are you condemned if you don't believe? Is it because somehow 
Was it God's fault? No. Look at why the person who does not believe is condemned. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So we must believe. Verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. This is a testimony of much of humanity. Jesus has come into the world. He's coming again. He has shined a light on human sin and rebellion. And the vast majority of people in Jesus' time scatter because of the light. Verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But, verse 21, but, but, whoever does what is true comes to the light. And what is doing what is true? It's not salvation by some merit or works. Doing what is true is first and foremost and primarily believing in him. But whoever does what is true, whoever believes in Jesus comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So even when we confess him and we know that he is our only hope, we come to him and realize that he is my life. He's the reason I'm alive. He's the reason I can live for him even after I've believed in him. Friends, verses 17 through 21 follow on the good news of verse 16 and they show us that all humanity is divided into two groups those who either receive jesus or reject him which group are you in if you by god's grace have become aware that up to this point you have been rejecting him believe in him even now believe in him the one who lived and died and rose again, who ascended to heaven, who is coming back. Believe in him. Put all of your hope in him now. And believer that's heard this verse a thousand times, how are we to react to this good news afresh on this Resurrection Sunday, we are to be amazed, humbled. Our worship is to be fueled, and our passion for God and our fervor for other souls should be ignited because we know that God's love has come into this fallen world for sinners like me. Whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. And our reaction should be like Paul's in Romans 8 where he says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, how will he not graciously with him give us all things? In other words, what can this world do to me? I have eternal life in the Son. Let's pray. Lord, take this text. Take this very centerpiece of the Bible and use it for your good and gracious means. I pray that many in this room would believe if they have not yet believed and turn away from themselves and believe that they would look and live. And I pray that those of us that have not, that have already, that have already believed would stand freshly amazed at the love of God 
in the Son so that we might have eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.